Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia. And once again, we have an awesome guest on the show. We have Dr. Karen Joyce. Welcome to the show, Dr. Karen. Thanks for having me, Amelia. It's a pleasure. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? Well, I guess for most people, that would be an an easy question. Um, For me, not so much. But actually, before I start that, do you mind if I I'd just actually like to do an acknowledgement to country and recognise that today I am on the unceded or stolen lands of the Jabagai people and I, I feel really privileged to live, work, breathe and play on the beautiful land and sea country that is the Cairns region or the traditional where the traditional custodians have looked after the the land area for around 60,000 years or so so um, I I feel really privileged to be in this part of the beautiful world and so back to your question about the job that I do (laughs) no worries thank you it's it's an interesting question so I, I have five jobs One is an unpaid job, so I am a a mother and a wife, and with that, of course, comes with with a lot of a lot of responsibilities. And perhaps you know, I don't know if that's the most important job that I have, but it's certainly a really really big job in my life. I am also a a group fitness instructor at my local gym, so I teach I teach Les Mills body pump classes or weights classes. So a standard, you know, I guess if, if you're not a gym goer, just think aerobics kind of stuff, that's me, I do that. And then I, I have probably, I guess what most people might think is, is the real job perhaps. I'm, I'm an academic at James Cook University. So I, I teach and I do research in the area of how we how we can use drones and satellites to monitor the earth and the environment and then in addition to that i i'm the co-founder of two separate startup companies so one is called she maps and it's still in the same sort of space as my academic job so i still work with drones and geospatial technologies but it's a community outreach or schools outreach and engagement program where i work with with students and teachers and community groups as well to teach them how we use drones and geospatial technologies in the world and in particular a real focus on encouraging more girls and women into that part of that part of the workforce and the final job that I have is is another startup and it's called Geonadia and and our mission at Geonadia is to create the world's most detailed map of the planet using crowdsourced drone data and we, we do this with people from many, many countries around the world. We have about 49 different countries represented at the moment with people who have registered to join us. And we, we manage their drone data. And as part of that, we're using it to map our most at-risk ecosystems. So there we go. There's a, a smorgasbord of five different types of jobs. 
that that honestly sounds pretty busy and I've already used up like a quarter of the space that I'd normally take notes in. <laughs> Sorry. Do not apologize. That, that is not something you need to apologize for. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot in there that I'd like to kind of ask a few more questions about, but you're the second person who's been a Les Mills instructor, like a STEM professional and a Les Mills instructor on the side. How did you end up doing that? Like that is not something that people go, oh, she's into drones. She'll also enjoy getting up in front of people and telling them when to lift their weights. It's actually, it's interesting that um, that you've come across somebody else that does that as well. Who is that one? Who's that person? Uh, Chantelle, she's a vet. And it was the combination of actually her vet skills and her Les Mills instructing that then resulted in her getting this really awesome job because she had presenting skills that came. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I, I I've I've always been into health and fitness. I I love I love sport. Um I yeah, I, I just really love exercise and I've been an instructor for maybe about 8 years now, I think, across three different programs that Les Mills runs. And I, I really like I really like the workouts. Um, I'm not someone that could create my own choreography nor, and I don't have the brain space or desire to do that anyway. So I really like that it's a program that has has the work plan set out for you and you just have to memorize it and teach it. And I, I, I really enjoy being able to help others to achieve their fitness goals as well. And that way I also get a little bit of pay to work out instead of paying to work out. So, you know, there's kind of wins on all areas and it definitely has helped me in other areas of my, my professional life as well. It's a, it's a really good way to practice skills in, in presenting, like you said, um, with, with the other person who's a vet as well. I think that it just, it's, it's, it's a different style of teaching and, I've actually learnt more about teaching through teaching those programs than I have through teaching at university, I think. So, yeah, I actually think it's a really good mix and a good balance. Well, and it's a break from screens. It's a break from thinking about drones and all that sort of stuff. It's a very different world you get to step into. Yeah, absolutely, and I get to meet different people and and I, and I think that it's it's interesting when you, you think about the collaborations that you make across across science or in your professional life and many of the collaborations networks and connections that we make the most the most creative ones and sometimes the most interesting ones don't come out of the the same people that you meet day to day so I have met people in my gym classes that I've I then sort of come across professionally as well and I think it's just it's quite cool to see how you can intertwine your lives in that way and it's it's more interesting definitely and I think that's a really good example of you don't need to do everything straight on one career track doing things a little bit off to the side can be really beneficial yeah absolutely I am definitely not the one to follow a linear path for my career at all (laughs) excellent we're not really big into straight lines here (laughs) no no that that would have been easier though but (laughs) but maybe not so interesting. The scenic route's always good. With the Geonidea concept, so how did that how did that idea come about? Yeah, so the I guess that the core 
part of Geonidea started because as, as someone who flies drones and has done for about seven years now, I have a huge amount of drone data and I often have people, students and other researchers asking me if I have, if I have any data of such and such a type of feature or, you know, are there data sets that I could share that they can work on? And I, first of all, I have more than enough data for myself. I, I have no desire to, to hoard it in a little silo where no one can use it. But the, the other part is that I think that, that data can be used in many different ways. So I may have captured a data set to look at, for example, the amount of live coral on the Great Barrier Reef but somebody else could see something completely different in that exact same data set and perhaps they're interested in in looking at giant clams or sharks or rays or sea cucumbers or whatever. And I'm never, ever, ever going to use my data for that. So it makes absolute sense that I should share these data sets. But the challenge has been for me over the years that whenever someone asks if they can use my data, I just don't have an easy way to get those data to them. And I wanted, I wanted a platform that made it easy for me to manage data for myself, but then to be able to share it with people. So I could say, hey, yeah, look, well, here's all my data. You go and have a look and decide for yourself what, what data set you think will be best to suit your purpose. And then crack on, download it, and, and off you go. So that was my main motivation. And as I started thinking about that and talking to more people, I realised that actually there's quite a few people that are in, in the same boat as me. They would like to share their data, but it's just not easy to do that. And there's other people that hadn't even thought about sharing their data. But when you talk to them, you realise that a lot of data is getting lost because sits on somebody's hard drive maybe that person moves on to a different job and the, the data just disappear as part of that course of action so that seemed wasteful to me and I wanted a way to make it a lot easier for people just to put their data in a place where everybody can can get to use it and then in line with that I I know many many people who fly drones for recreation purposes. And I thought, well, if every single one of those drone pilots around the world, and there's, there's literally hundreds of thousands of them, if all of them just took out one extra battery every time they fly recreationally, they just took one extra, extra battery and ran a mapping mission, we could actually start to really think about mapping the world with drones. And so the idea was then to bring all these people together, to bring the researchers and scientists and other practitioners who use drones and need some help managing the data with those that don't even necessarily think that they have a data collection tool that get them all together into the one place and capturing data for a common purpose. And that's how, that's how we started with Geonidia. And it's been, it's a really, really exciting journey actually going through very early stages of, of creating that platform to look and feel the way that I want it to do so that hopefully it can help other people as well. It's, it's very exciting. Is there a way, like, would you like to encourage if there's any listeners who have drones, like, is there any way you'd like to encourage them to contribute? Yeah, absolutely. 
So our website is geonadir.com, which is G-E-O-N-A-D-I-R. And it literally means the earth, geo, and Nadir looking directly down from above. So geonadir.com. And all you need to do is jump on the site and you can you can launch the platform and have a look at the data sets that are already there. There's instructions on, on how to get involved, how to upload your data, which is pretty simple actually. It's really just a, a simple click of a button. So you, you barely need instructions, which is the way we really wanted it to be designed. And then if you've never mapped before, there's instructions to help you with that as well. So definitely if, if you've never mapped but you have a drone and would like to get involved in something that's very environmentally based and gives you an excuse to get out and fly a little bit more, jump on geonadir.com and, we'd, yeah, we'd absolutely love to have your, your data in the system. And it doesn't cost anything either. Which is fantastic. And you never know, your data could be, like, pivotal in understanding species movements or spatial distribution of weeds there's all sorts of things yeah absolutely and there's people from all over the world that can find it useful as well so you know I a lot of my work is on coral reefs and I might go out to the the local reefs around where I work but perhaps I'm interested in the reefs in Japan as well but I have no way of getting there but this gives me an ability to get data from different parts of the world with areas that I'm interested in as well so it's 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 a really good way to sort of break down some geographical barriers in data capture as well and particularly during COVID if you can't get out and capture data there's no shortage on our platform that's for sure. What resolution are you like aiming to have the, the globe map to? Well, so that's, it's an interesting question, actually, because there's a couple of things that that is affected by. And as far as drones work, when you, when you capture photos from a drone, it, the amount of detail that you see in a photo will be dependent on the, the quality of the camera on the drone, but also on the altitude that you fly at, so how high you're flying. And I guess that's the same as if you if you think about taking a photo of anything out in the world just with your phone or whatever, the closer you are to that thing, the more detail that you see. So the same goes with the drone. In Australia, our maximum altitude that we're allowed to fly is 400 feet, which is about 120 metres. And it sort of depends on what drone you're using and the the camera quality of that drone as to what resolution that will mean your photos are taken at. And when, I guess when when we work on a project, usually we go by thinking, okay, well, what's the size of the feature that I'm interested in, in identifying first? And then we work out from, well, the smaller the feature, then the closer you need to fly to that feature to be able to see it in the, in the environment. But when we don't necessarily know what the data are going to be used for, then it's, it's a tough one to say, okay, I need everybody to fly at 120 metres altitude or I need everyone to fly at 20 metres altitude. So it, it really, really does depend on the application. Uh, for people that are flying to contribute without necessarily thinking specifically of their own cause, we ask them to fly at 80 metres altitude, which for many of the commonly used off-the-shelf DJI drones, that will give us a, 
a resolution of about two to three centimeters or so, depending on the again, depending on the drone that you fly. That's so detailed. It is. That's it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, if, you know, for other applications, so we we have a project at the moment where we're looking at counting sea cucumbers on the reef. We need to fly at 20 metres altitude to get that, and that will give us about a half a, half a centimetre pixel size. So, yeah, super detailed, but, um, yeah, that's that's what we need to to identify certain features. And then, and then other things, it's fine if you're up at 120. Yeah, it's a... It's a bit of a uh, step up from like when I was in uni, we were learning about pretty big aerial images. Mm-hmm. Resolution was not in the centimeters. That's exciting. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of my work originally at uni was u- using thirty meter pixel, so very very different scale and. You know, sometimes that makes it really, really challenging to process as well, right? These are really large data sets and they have a lot of detail in it and sometimes that detail is too much even. So it's a, it doesn't necessarily make it easier when you've got more stuff that you can see. No, it just means there's more in the image now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. More noise sometimes too. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, everything is trade-offs, right? Absolutely, that's right. And we're almost getting through your your first intro, but did you want to touch a little bit on the Shea Map stuff? Because that just sounds awesome. Yes. Let's get more young people into drones and things. It's surely one of the best gateways into STEM. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. She Maps started out of a something that I, I realized back in 2016 when I it was it was National Science Week at the time and the theme for National Science Week was drones and I'd been asked to go and visit a number of our local schools up here in Cairns to chat with us chat with the school students about what I was doing uh, at the university and I realized that it was great going to primary schools the kids are really enthusiastic lots and lots of questions but then when I went to our local high school there were no girls that came to my talk no yeah, I know, right? And I, you know, I said to the teacher, oh. I said, so what, you know, did you pick the students to come or who, like how, how did it happen that this is the cohort of students that I came, that came to, to chat with me about this? And they said, oh, no, it was open to everyone. I said, okay, so how did you advertise it? What did you say? And they said, oh, yeah, it was just a talk about drones. And I said, oh, okay, all right, <laughs> this is interesting. And obviously something that, you know, seems to be a little bit more in the boy space. And, you know, at the same time that we know that we have less than about 5% of Australia's drone pilots are women. So, yeah, you know, I started thinking, you know, why is this and is there anything that we can do to change it? And I applied for some funding to run a, a drone day at the high school and, and the idea was if, if I got this funding, I, I would offer it to the school and say, okay, now it needs to be advertised as girls only. And, and I thought, yeah, it'd be great if I could get maybe 20 girls for the day. Bearing in mind, again, that the first time I tried, there were no girls. I got the funding and went, went back to the school and they're like, yeah, awesome. And then they came back to me 24 hours later and said, okay, we've got, got about 60 girls and then we've started putting them on a waiting list. What do you think? And I... I thought, ouch, I don't know what I'm going to do with the 60 girls. 
And so, yeah, at that time, it was just really the idea was born, I guess, to, to run this drone program. And I, so I, create, I decided I'd, I'd cut the group in half and do a half-day program for each. And we, so it's 30, 30 girls in a school gymnasium with 10 micro drones all flying around at once and, you know, teaching them how we use drones professionally in, in terms of, okay, well, you know, you have to do a safety check, then, then you have to pra- learn how to fly it manually and then you need to learn how to fly it automated and use some coding to do that as well. And that was the way the program was set out. And, you know, four years later, the program is, is actually still exactly the same with some minor 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 tweaks here and there but the the core of it is is exactly the same it's a two and a half hour program and i've taught that to more than seven thousand students around the world now and we really focus on working with with a priority on girls and and women and so about 70 percent of those programs have been run with girls and we have partners in 15 different countries who run the program for us as well. So it's pretty exciting and it's, it's a way that we, we bring diversity to STEM in two ways. First of all, in the sense that when many people think of STEM, they, they are thinking about test tubes, uh, lab coats, uh, robots and 3D printers. They're sort of the main themes that come up. But when I think about STEM, I think about maps and drones and the environment in in a very different way. And the the sad thing is that we know that school school students from quite young age are already self-selecting as to whether or not they're good at science or good at STEM and will self-select out of some of these subjects. And that's, you know, that's fine if you decide, hey, I'm not good at chemistry, I don't want to do this but to decide that they're not good at science or STEM as a whole based on a really, really narrow definition of what they perceive it to be is, is hugely detrimental to themselves but also to the greater good of science. So we bring diversity into what people think about as STEM, but then also who does it. And we have about 27% of our STEM workforce are women, so we're interested in changing that too. I'm really excited about the prospect of changing that 5% that are drone pilots as well, though. Yeah, absolutely. But there's other parts of using drones that's re- that are really cool as well. And I think that, you know, maybe maybe we get the women into the actually really cool parts of droning and, you know, the machine learning side of working with the data and the applications. Because realistically, we're not actually going to have drone pilots in the next few years, they'll be like the internet cafe where they were useful for a little while, but then after that, everything's automated and we don't actually need people flying drones because it's all done by machines anyway. So yeah, maybe maybe we look at the higher, higher order components of the drone world, like surveying, like spatial, and that's where we get women into. I'm guessing you're also going to need a couple of people who are able to analyze the data sets as well. Possibly a bit of data science could be useful too. Yeah, absolutely. That That is is where the future is in, in, my, in my mind, as opposed to manually flying drones. I, I think that the, the application side, whether it's on the geospatial and the data analytics or whether it's, it's on deliveries or transportation, whatever it is, it's, it's many things that are much, much bigger than manual piloting skills. 
When you were talking to various students, teachers, etc., did you find that there were any myths about working with drones that was resulting in the girls self-selecting out? Are there myths in the education sphere about drones? Yeah, there's, there's a huge amount of bias and it's not just about drones, right? It's, it's, in, <laughs> it's in our daily lives and, and, and what society determines people are good at, not good at or may like or dislike based on, on gender. And that, you know, that starts from the moment a parent finds out the gender of their child, right? And that, you know, that can even be before they're born. And it's, it's, you know, do we put a bow on the baby's head? Do we paint their room pink? And what messages all these types of things send to children? And it then starts perpetuating through their lives with, with subtle things and sometimes not so subtle, the messages that get sent to girls and boys about what they can and can't do in the world. And it's not necessarily intentional in many cases as well. And I think that's part of what can be really insidious about unconscious bias is that if we don't know that we're biased about something, it's really, really hard to tackle. And so we actually work with the students when we run our programs, we explicitly call out unconscious bias to start to get people to think of things in a more conscious way, because that's the only way to tackle it, to be conscious about something. And we, we talk with students about the types of things that they've been told that they they could or couldn't do or should or shouldn't do because they're a girl or a boy. And then go into the you know, discussions around, you know, is there actually a hard line between girl and boy anyway? And why is it that we feel the need to categorize people in ways that are actually detrimental to their well-being and to society as a whole as well? So it is it's part of a really, really big discussion. And and it's it's interesting. I think I think that Young kids are actually really quite well educated into this space and we do have students who will then tell us about toxic toxic masculinity, for example, which is certainly not a term that would have ever been used when I was at school, but the students are coming through understanding some of these concepts. So I do hope, I do think it's hopeful for change in the future. Yeah, that's amazing. And I like that you're sneaking in a bit of like social change with what could easily just have been packaged up as STEM. Yeah, the social change aspect of it is absolutely core to our theory of change, which is that that we we actually need 100% of our talent pool to to work with some of the really big challenges that we have environmentally as as far as we think about climate change, sustainability, all, all sorts of things in in our in our lives and unless we are using everybody's talents then then we're not going to get there and you know there's so much research out there that shows that a lot of the really big problems need to be tackled by educating girls and uh, part and parcel of dealing with equality and, and equity is is not just getting girls to fix the problem 
but it's it's getting all of society to to understand it and and change as a whole as well so no we don't just teach drones we don't just teach a stem program then there's there's other other groups that do that as well but we have a much broader picture and that's that's part of our work as we are a certified social enterprise and and that's part of our our impact that that we hope to make on the world it's great work is there any way that listeners could support it or get involved yeah absolutely so you can just go to our website which is shemaps.com s-h-e-m-a-p-s like google maps but she as in me and yeah there's there's all sorts of bits of information about the program and how you can bring the program to your schools as well so anyone that would like to get involved if you can just just jump on the website you can shoot us through an email we'll learn more about the program we have lots and lots of online resources as well which makes it a lot easier particularly in COVID as well if you're unable to travel or if we're unable to travel to your school that sort of thing and and for our overseas people as well that makes it really useful to be able to do stuff online so definitely you can jump on the website or you can follow us on social media as well so you can just search for she maps or for geona deer or just for me as well there's all sorts of ways you can connect and i just want to encourage if there's people listening and you think this drone stuff sounds cool but you're like oh it's for kids it's not just for kids. You can also get involved. I would definitely start by having a look at the website, watching some videos and seeing how you can dabble as well. And then you can contribute to the big data sets and it'll be really awesome. You're not too old. Most definitely not. And, you know, it's, it's something that's really interesting. I, I do get people say, oh, you know, is this just for kids or or what age group is this for? And the interesting thing is that I can run this the exact same program with, with primary school students that I can run with my postgraduate students at JCU because the reality is if you've never flown a drone before or if you've never used a drone for mapping before, you're still starting at the same base, which is unknown. And so I I have taught kids as young as five and the oldest person that I know that I have taught is 70, but there may have been people that are older than that. So absolutely not too young and not too old either. Fantastic. I'm excited for seeing some some drone flying photos coming through at some point. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, I'm yeah, more than open to, to people sharing their pictures and, and of course, tagging me on social media if, if you want reshares as well. And I don't know if we mentioned, but obviously drones are awesome. <laughs> I think their data are awesome. Ah. I, th- I think the drones are a little bit. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of people think they are, which is, I, I guess, why it's, why it's a good hook into STEM as well, because people want to fly. Whereas I, I just, I like the data. What does an average, and we'll just rephrase it to week, what does an average week look like for you? Whoa. <laughs> well, that's a really tough one, an average week. Uh, to be honest, a lot of it at the moment is spent on Zoom. And then, so I have, I have people that I work with um, around Australia, but also overseas as well. And so I, I do have quite a few Zoom meetings. I have postgraduate students who I catch up with who are also not necessarily located here in Cairns. So we'll, we'll catch up on Zoom. So I'm a bit of a, a Zoom nut. 
I'm otherwise often on my my computer processing processing some data or creating educational materials for this for students that I teach the classes that I run etc I don't get out in the field as much as I would like to I going out to do field work or drone flying isn't something that I do every week it's usually something that I'll, I'll have a week-long intensive so two weeks ago for example I was out on on Orpheus Island on the Great Barrier Reef and I was there for eight days capturing data and that amount of data will keep me going for quite some time so I have sort of those intensive blocks of things that I do yeah I guess that, that yeah the, the work side is definitely a lot of stuff just in front of the computer and then of course every day there's exercise of some description and running around with family stuff as well so lots and lots of things intertwined lots of talking to people lots of writing proposals yeah blogs podcasts <laughs> interviews that kind of stuff yeah there's it's a big variety so I'm guessing you heavily rely on some calendar system because yeah otherwise there's just too much going on yeah I I am I am heavily scheduled. I, I like I like calendars. I like to-do lists. Every, every day has chunks blocked out for every little thing, like whether that's going that, that's going for a run or whatever that's in my diary, that that's what needs to happen. It just keeps me accountable. So it's I, I, I schedule things that most people wouldn't necessarily schedule. Anything that sort of is going to take more than 15 minutes to do, is is scheduled and that way I know that I've done it and I feel good when I can tick it off that it's done as well. It also explains how you're able to achieve so much. No, I'm able to achieve lots because I have some really good people around me. I have fabulous people that I work with and so I, I absolutely cannot take credit for so much of the stuff that, that happens. I'm, I'm really, really lucky to have, have a good team of people and you know they're distributed around the world as well and so that's just something that I've always really enjoyed being able to do is to not just have to rely on people that are in the office next door but yeah I my, my husband and I work together and he's in the office next door but everybody else there's there's no one else in Cairns that that we work with for our businesses they're around the world. You were distributed before it was cool. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I was Zooming before anybody knew what that was. <laughs> People were still Skyping back then. <laughs> wow. How have you, so bearing all that in mind, we're going to try and keep on time. How have you ended up in this situation with your five jobs? Like what was your path from high school to where you are now? Well, that's another really long question. So in I finished high school and I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I, I knew I enjoyed science, so I just thought I'll just do a science degree at uni. And again, I didn't know what science to, I wanted to do, but I I was in Canberra, so I went to school in Canberra, and I had just I I got into ANU and was at sort of the sign-on day, trying to decide what subjects I would take. And I was doing a Bachelor of Asian Studies, Bachelor of Science, so double degree. And in science, I was able to take two subjects 
And as I was sort of looking at all the different subjects, there was a, a geography class that had a field trip to a research station down the coast. And I was like, oh, yeah, I like camping. That sounds like fun. I'd never, ever done geography before at school. And I took this subject and I just, I really, really enjoyed it. And I took physics as well. And it was uh, an astronomy class, which was awesome. But then when I, I later transferred to University of Queensland and just, I I had started doing some marine science classes, but they really got stuck into the geography and just found remote sensing, which was which I really really enjoyed. And and interestingly, I had been working at at the time through school. I worked at at photographic mini labs like Kodak Express to develop people's photos. A, a job that I never thought I would not be able to describe to my son what that meant. <laughs> But I had, um, I'd been working during one of the university holidays. I was in, uh, I was in second year uni at the time, and one of the clients that we had, who he used to come in quite frequently because he was a wedding photographer, and so I was developing his photos and having a chat with him. He was an older guy, and he asked what I was doing at uni, and I told him, and he said, "Oh, you know, you'll probably do remote sensing soon, I guess, if you're doing geography." And I was like, "Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know what that is." And he said, oh, well, you know, we use satellites and stuff. And it turned out he worked at Geoscience Australia. And I was I was in Canberra for the uni holidays working at this job. And he said, why don't you come out and I can show you around. And so I, so I did. I, I went out to Geoscience Australia and I, I saw, like, the Landsat stream coming through. And I was like, hey, this is really cool. And then I was taking, he was right, I was taking remote sensing and GIS the following year and I just really, really enjoyed it. And so I kept doing it and I, I enjoyed being out on the reef. So I had gone through the UQ prospectus and picked every subject that went to the reef and I just kind of made my degree that way, just doing all the geospatial stuff I could do and all the reef stuff I could do. And then I figured that, well, I could do both of reef and geospatial in an honours program that then turned into a PhD program. And it just kind of kept flowing from there. But when I finished my PhD, I then sort of felt that I didn't really have enough real world skills. And I had been, I had been in the Army Reserve during my uni time as well. So I decided to leave uni and go full time in the Army. So I did that for a few years as a as a geomatic engineer and worked a lot with you know, surveying and aerial camera systems and that sort of stuff. Still, as a as an engineer, you still have to build bridges and blow them up and that. So I did all that kind of training. Then after my time in the army, I moved to New Zealand, and that's my husband is from New Zealand. So I was I was over there and I had a job at the Department of Conservation, which was awesome, a, a fabulous job where it was my job to look at all the, the recreation opportunities that within the, the New Zealand conservation estate and sort of characterise a lot of these recreation opportunities. So, of course, I had to travel around the country to go and, and see the hiking tracks and the huts and the campsites and all this sort of stuff that, that is just phenomenal over in New Zealand. So I did that job for a while, which was fabulous, and then was asked to um, to join an organisation called GNS Science, and it was Geological and Nuclear Sciences, 
to work on remote sensing of natural hazards. And as much as I'd really love the recreation work, it was GIS and not remote sensing. So I jumped over to this other organisation and started working on volcanoes and landslides and floods and all those sort of earthquakes, all the hazards that happen over in New Zealand. And this was there for a couple of years before deciding it was really just too cold for me in New Zealand. And then I came back to Australia and started up at Charles Darwin Uni and then was, I, was, I was at CDU for six or seven years and then now over to JCU where I've been for six, six years now as an academic at JCU. So a very, very scenic route <laughs> to, to my career, I guess. It's not, definitely not the most direct route and one of the, probably one of the more varied, I think, that people have. And, yeah, who knows where it will be in the future. Yeah, I won't ask you what, what comes next, but... <laughs> who knows? I don't know. I've never known, so... Well, it sounds like it's worked out all the same. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it, like I said, it's, it's non-standard and that it does get challenging, I, I think, you know, when it comes to looking at promotion pathways when people like to see that you've done things in a particular way and spent a certain amount of time in in rank, I guess, uh, which I've, I've never prescribed to those pathways. But I don't know. It's the scenic route is interesting. Well, and at each point along that route, you will have picked up really valuable skills that are useful now. Yeah, I like to think that's the case for sure. Yeah, I, I think that everything, and it's just going back to the Les Mills instruction as well, is it's it's non-standard, but it's stuff that, that it makes makes part of my story be different to the next person and their skills that I I rely on all the time and they're different networks that I guess help help me and the work that I do be different from someone who has taken that linear pathway. Considering all that, is there any advice that you would give to a young person who's like drones remote sensing it all sounds kind of cool I might like to do that in my future is there any advice you'd give to them I think you should do what you enjoy doing and I think that if you enjoy doing whatever that thing is then you will be good at it because you'll be willing to put in the time that it takes to become good at it and there's no point in in doing something because you feel an obligation to study a particular route or because someone in your family has done that before or you feel you should do it I think you should just do do what you love and eventually that will that will lead you to to being satisfied in what you're doing and and hopefully get to a point where you become great at it as well yeah that's that's pretty good advice is there were you ever given advice that you look back on now and you're like wow that was terrible advice I don't think so I, I guess like throughout I was oh maybe parts of it so at school I was advised not to not to study physics because only boys do physics that, that was terrible advice but I ignored it so <laughs> that's okay um I, again I was advised not to take engineering at uni because that's that's only something that boys do again that that was terrible advice and 
advice that I took but probably turned out to be okay for for the wrong reasons like it probably wasn't the right path for me anyway but um but that was not the the intent of the advice when it was given yeah there are probably a couple couple of things that stand out in my mind and those those types of pieces of advice are still given to girls today as well that they should or shouldn't do various subjects because because they're girls and yeah part of part of my role I guess is to to help people realize that it doesn't it doesn't matter what gender you are that absolutely should not affect what career choices or personal choices you make in your life definitely and you're also not the first person who has been told that they shouldn't do (laughs) physics other people have been told they shouldn't do maths or it's it's just like (gasps) I know it's crazy (laughs) Is it, there's some teachers I want to slap. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really it's really really destructive, and the the bias that goes into making those comments is is so uneducated. But you know, there's there's amazing teachers as well. So I hope that they make up for some of these really damaging comments that can be made. Is there anything that you wish the general public understood about the, your job? Is there any? myths or yeah anything you'd like to do some myth busting of Hmm. I think it's it's less in Australia but I know in the US for example they don't don't like to use the term drone because it has has military connotation and and drones kill which uh, you know some people in Australia think that as well and we have been (laughs) We have had parents say, oh, I can't believe you're teaching teaching children about drones. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, it's such a silly thing because, you, you know, my response to that is always, oh, do you have knives in your kitchen? <laughs> I can't believe you teach your children how to use knives. You know, it's, it's the same sort of thing. Like, yes, you can use drones to kill. You can use knives to kill. You can use words to kill. So you know there's there's goods and bads to to everything and we we obviously educate on on the positive uses of drones and and, and hopefully being educated about something leads leads to informed choices rather than keeping children in the dark about about the ways in which we can use technology yeah and i think remembering that drones are in and of themselves a tool they're not they're not inherently yeah. evil, just like AI, not inherently evil, all these things. Like you, you kind of have to have a person behind it to make it bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just a machine. <laughs> just because yeah. it flies and it can sort of sneak around a bit. Yeah, well, it can't really sneak around. They're, they're not really sneaky. They're noisy. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're not like the, the magical flying ones that happen in sci-fi where it's silent. Like no. if you've had a drone above you, you know. No, yeah, they're not, they're not sneaking around. <laughs> Do you have a shout-out, a virtual high-five that everyone listening can give high-fives to someone or an organisation that's doing an awesome job that you would like to be like, you're awesome? I was I'll shout out to to my teammates that, that I work with on, on a daily basis through through she maps Juna Deer and JCU as well. I have I, I like I said before, I, I can't do stuff without amazing people around me. And 
so some of the some of the incredible people that I work with, Dr. Stephanie Deuce at James Cook University is is awesome, and we we collaborate a lot on on our drone coral reef stuff. The the team at Gionadia with Jules Blundell, Joan Lee, my husband Paul Mead, who is with with everything that I do, and our our web development team at at Naxa, who are just phenomenal. They're just all incredible people to work with. And and at She Maps with um with Alison Sodi and our our graphic designer who makes everything that we do look pretty is is Nadia over in South Africa. And yeah, there's I guess there's lots and lots of people that that I shout out to and the people that I want to surround myself with, I guess, and hopefully, uh, oh, and Katie Vital at Maps as well. I don't want to forget anybody. <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> Lots of people. Fantastic. So everyone listening, we're giving a lot of people high fives today, and we are also appreciating the amount of village that it takes to create uh, startups and to maintain all sorts of awesome research, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, definitely not something that I can or want to do by myself either. I, I'm into collaboration, not competition. So that's that's where my mind space is. Fantastic. And it's looking like there's a bit of evidence that that results in uh, possibly more being created than could have happened solo. Well, yeah, it is, it's the idea that the whole is, the great, is greater than the sum of the parts and yeah, when, when we work together with the right people, that's that's when it when the magic really happens. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Karen. This has been fascinating. There was a lot of twisty turns, which is really, really awesome. Thanks so much for sharing. Thanks so much for having me, Amelia. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.